millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good right. luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. This is the Irish Times Second Captains Podcast with all my debit, Kira Murphy. Hello there. And Ken Erdy. Hey, how are you doing? Hello, Kira. Hello, Ken. Yeah, you didn't have to look too hard at the All-Ireland semi-final yesterday to find those small but symbolic moments that sum up how a big match has gone. Aidan Walsh's rueful shake of the head as he's getting substituted with 15 minutes still to go when you can see Jimmy Barry Murphy is trying to say something comforting to him. Walsh doesn't really want to hear it at that stage. Eamon O'Shea's manic celebration. I don't know if you remember this one, Murph. Yeah. Very early on was John O'Dwyer just before the half-hour mark. O'Dwyer had blocked Damien Callan down and stuck one over the bar and O'Shea was going crazy as though it was the All-Ireland winner itself yeah, and there was he, an, sorry to interrupt but just have one more moment Okay, this is in the second half when one of the Cork defenders I think it might have been Callan again but because I've already name checked him I'll, I'll leave this person nameless it could be yes uh, possibly Callan hand pass to nowhere in particular and then it just there was no communication to him and the one or two players he seemed to be hand passing the ball in between he then suddenly walked away from the scene almost in a silk while balling at one of the fellow defenders. None of it was very edifying from a core point of view. No, no. A pretty disappointing day at the office, yeah. shall we say. What were you going to say before I... Well, no, just that I, we had seen that Eamon O'Shea reaction before, just in the closing moments of the Tipperary Galway game. Mm. Um, and it put me in mind of that because I remember looking at that thing, that's not a very Eamon O'Shea-like thing to do, that, that level of celebration and animation on the, the sideline. Uh, and ever since I've thought that, I've seen that maybe 10 times <laughs> from Eamon O'Shea. So it, all it took really was for Eamon O'Shea to win his first championship game against Galway and then basically to take it from there. That's how he celebrates now. We just didn't know. I sometimes first, wonder, first year. you know these GA managers, they have other lives. They have real jobs. Yeah. In the case of Eamon O'Shea, he's an economist. Yeah. I wonder the guys who deal with the, these, I'm sure he's very calm, very measured, very intelligent. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're watching TV, they're going... These other economists, is this, is this, this guy's a total I'm lunatic. Losing, I'm losing I'm my mind here, but that that manager, that wild-eyed manager down there looks a lot like fabled and respected university professor yeah. Eamon O'Shea. It wasn't the case with Jerry McEntee, the wild man of Meath, yeah. uh, who, who uh, sullied Croke Park <laughs> with, that red, with that red card. Uh, yeah. One of one of uh, the country's most respected surgeons. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's uh, it, yeah, I suppose you get to... Show you know it's the duality of man, Ken, isn't it? Really, you know, um, that at one stroke you can be picking fights with Cork midfielders in Crow Park in front of seventy thousand fans. Just wherever, the very next day, he saving people's lives with those 
fame hads that were Wherever punching Jerry people in the head. Went, there was only one thing you could be sure of. There would be blood. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get into the hurling with Malachy Clerk and Morris O'Brien very shortly uh, superb final day at the European Athletics Championships yesterday it was a good championships generally for Ireland Mark English helped us to 5th place in the 4x400 metres final this was yesterday after winning bronze in his own 800 metres event on Friday uh, Paul Robinson took 4th yesterday in the 1500 metres you might have seen the race Kieran O'Loner eliminated after getting caught up in a bit of a physical battle near the front. David Gillick has been in a few of those and he's going to be in studio in a little while. Mark English is just back from Zurich, so we're going to chat to him. He was the star of the show with that uh, with that third place, that bronze, and also running 45 seconds flat in his leg of the 400 metres runner, which isn't even his primary event, the 400 metres relay, I should say. So looking forward to talking to Mark and to David Gillick. And the Premier League is back, Ken. Mm. What do you think of the opening weekend? Not great. <laughs> it wasn't amazing. No, um... Spoiled a bit, I think, by the World Cup and uh, the sort of humdrum reality of league football didn't quite match up to. I saw quite the opposite in advance. I saw people tweeting, "Oh, we apo- oh, dear Premier League, you know, we apologise uh, for having our summer dalliance with the World Cup, but you're our true love, and now you're back." Yeah, um, you're not so sure. Well, that I mean, that may be the case. I mean. It may <laughs> true love. I don't know if true love is necessarily the word, but definitely this is the this is the person. This is your spouse. Yeah, you know why go out for steaks when you've burgers at home? You've been away. That's what the Premier League said to me this week. Something something along those lines, you know. So you're at, you're at home having some tripe and onions, burgers. Um, look, it four was, burgers, nothing else. That's your dinner now for the for another nine months. And then you go back. It's good food. Open arms. You know? it's, yeah, it's it's good food. It'll, it'll keep body and soul together. Hold on, Louis van Gaal, Manchester United, incredible dynamic already. Well, it did get off to a, to a pretty spectacular start. You know, the first match of the season was yeah. was pretty spectacular. I mean, it, there was a huge reaction to it. Obviously, this uh, unexpected defeat for Manchester United, and yeah, okay, that that game was good. Swansea played really well. I think maybe it's an overlo- overlooked thing in that. Um, you know, with everybody. You know, asking what Manchester United think they're doing, and uh, is this just going to be the same as last season? But Swansea actually did play well. I think look like they could have a good season. I mean, based on that. But the rest of the games, I mean, I don't think. Sorry. No, no. I was just going to say that uh, Louis Van Gaal opened his managerial box of tricks, and I know that that really you know, it shocked you. It shocked other people in, in the media as well. On there was a substitution about to be made. Fellaini was going to come on for Herrera, mm. and this was noted by the commentators. Another example of Louis Vanal just never knowing what he'll do next. We saw this in the World Cup when he brought on a goalkeeper uh, towards the end of the game. I was thinking, well, he's hang on, he's bringing on Fellaini for Herrera. So a central he, midfielder for a central you know, midfielder. Doesn't strike me as an extremely uh, expensive midfielder amazing. sitting on the bench, and you've decided to give him a run out. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's okay it's though, Ken. He's got a big ego. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah, he d- he does. Yeah, I thought he was quite restrained afterwards. He was great afterwards. I mean, he was signing autographs. Yeah. Uh, he didn't look too uh, too shell shocked. I mean, he did. Obviously, his English is is. I'm sure it will will improve a bit. He's got basic English, um, but no, maybe it's, it's not pretty decent. Yeah, I mean, it's it's okay. You know, it's, that's it's just the way he speaks. I'd imagine if he's for a Dutch per, for a Dutch person, it's not great. I mean, he is in his early sixties. You know, I don't know if necessarily the older Dutch people quite have the same fluency with English as, as the everybody under you know a certain age seems to in that country, but. You know, when he says something like, our confidence will be smashed down now. I think maybe the, the uh, way that he phrased that was a little uh, uh, extreme. But, you know, um, after that, 
you know, I watched, watched the, I pretty, pretty much spent the entire weekend watching football. Maybe it's not good to do that. You know, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't really be doing that to ourselves. Do you find sometimes when you spend an entire weekend watching football, you, because you've watched so much, you remember very little? Whereas if you had just watched one game maybe on each day, yeah. you're going to remember a lot more from what actually That happened. That would probably be, look, that's the way we're meant to watch football. You know, this this thing that's happened now with all these staggered kickoff times um, is unnatural. I mean, if it was, you know, if it was presented as a, as a kind of a buffet, you know, take what you want, uh, that would be fine. But instead it becomes an all-you-can-eat and uh, it's just watch as much as you can. And that's, uh, it's not healthy. Bring back ITV's The Big Match, says Ken. It's yeah. never been quite the same since you could you could watch Perry Groves only once a month. The presentation of football has been on a slow, irreversible decline ever since Elton Wellesby disappeared off the radar. Morris O'Brien and Madigan Clerken have popped into studio. Lads, thanks for calling in. No worries. I usually like on these Mondays to go through the post-match quotes in, in these sort of games, Maliki, and try to find a nugget. It can be difficult sometimes with modern players and managers. But uh, By the way, Seamus Callanan gave one of the all-time great on. displays of saying absolutely nothing on the TV. Oh, yeah. His post-match interview on was... On the pitch afterwards. Oh, my God. It was just... It was extraordinary. It was unbelievable. He was just... Look it. It was you a know, The next day will be a different yeah. deal. It was, it was just encapsulated in like one two minute slot everything that is the GA post match well, a master class of Asher look yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fortunately we had Eamon O'Shea yes, I, I, I couldn't pick out the best quote from what you reported today but I, firstly how is he ever going to get over the disappointment of the lack it's of terrible, God love him. quality forward play <laughs> was it as you say playing the poor mouth a little bit or was it we were talking about this in second captain's championship yesterday and the point was made well you know Lark Horber didn't play particularly well no, Noel sure. McGrath didn't play particularly so it wasn't as though all six forwards were perfect. No, it's true. Eamon uh, is easily the most enjoyable hurling manager to talk to afterwards because you kind of walk away from it going, what did he, what did he mean? <laughs> what? I'm not... Yeah, I think I get what he was saying. because He kind of... He he just kind of ruminates after a game, uh, and he was he was very much saying, you know, we're just not happy. We're not happy with what happened, you know. And then he came, but he came back to it about sort of five or six questions later and said, "Look, I'm not trying to play it down. What I'm trying to say is that our forwards didn't click, and to an extent, you know, you can't really argue with that. I mean, I really thought at half time, I think we all thought at half time, how the hell are Cork still in this? They're only two points behind." And actually, when you think about it, it's because Tipperary haven't played that well. <laughs> they really didn't. You know, they, I, th- I thought the first half was really kind of puzzling to me. You know, we, we've been watching Tipperary and Eamon O'Shea's Tipperary for, for how long now? And we, we, we come in here and we wax over the fluid movement and the use of space and all of that. The first half was lamp the ball into the big man yeah. on the edge of the square. It, it, seemed, it seemed almost sort of counterintuitive. And the second half, it only clicked a bit better because Bonner Maher went in there and essentially made the ball stick an awful lot more than, than just Shamie Callanan could do on his own. So I get what he was saying, you know, that, that you know, his sort of, his, his involvement with Tipperary in the beginning was with the forwards. His involvement was, you know, making the forwards into this sort of, this thing that Hurling hadn't really seen too much of before, like this, these interchanging forwards, creation of space, all of that. And so I guess, I mean, like that, there's probably still a part of him that, you know, kind of feels that that's what, what the stamp of his team should be. But 
I wrote in the paper today, like this was, a, yesterday was, was, apart from Cork, and we'll get on to Cork, but this was a, a case of the defence winning the match and the attack winning, deciding by how much. It like seemed, the, Their yeah. defenders were awesome. It seemed very much as though the for all the players say they don't read or they don't hear what's going on in the build-up, everybody talked about this shootout, talked about this high-scoring matches and the Tipperary defence and maybe the team in general from the forwards back decided actually, you know, we don't have to give, we don't have to let it be like that. A couple of players said afterwards, including James Woodlock, we're going to set our own tempo here. Yeah, definitely. I suppose their defence really set out to, like they were a mean defence yesterday. Like they were like, like something we see from Kilkenny at their best, like they were just mean. They were dominant in everywhere. They were tigerish. Like even Kyle Barrett really is a guy that really impressed me. Like you're, you're looking at Patrick Horgan as the guy that has to be shut down and like shut him down. Like he absolutely obliterated him. Like there's just with pace, aggression, everything. Like and from them guys in the full back line, himself, Stapleton, you know, and moving out to the half back line, they really set the tone. And it was absolutely unbelievable show of aggression. And then like. When that was done, when the ball was won, the distribution, like they mentioned in the Sunday game last night, Park Mara, like I think that he was, like often like the one criticism you have of his game is his distribution, like he lumps the ball in. I know, I know they did lump a share of ball into the full forward line, but they moved it into positions where they kind of they didn't just lump it in, they guided it in there, you know, from from the wings, from the likes of Shane McGrath, were, were getting like decent ball in. It was coming from a distance, but it was coming in a decent ball, and like it was really unbelievable from the backs and. The frame of mind to get it out to the midfielders to deliver the quality ball was really, really impressive. Yeah, and I think that's an uh, interesting point as well that you make about uh, Barrett going in on Patrick Horgan as well. The fate that Eamon O'Shea shows in guys. Yeah. And, you know, he's a forwards man, as you say, Malky, but that was a big call as well. You know, that it was like, a big, big call to pick. Yeah, Mickey yeah, Cattle Mickey back, Cattle, you know? yeah, yeah. It was the same. He did the same in the league final against Henry Shefflin. He absolutely destroyed Henry Shefflin in the league final as well. And like, it was my first time really sitting up taking notice of him. Like, you'd kind of seen him coming. Like, but really set up that day, took notice of him. Like, this guy is the real deal. Like, he, like, you know, Henry. Henry was probably put in there as a thing that look, he's the rookie back, and what they always did for years. And Henry goes in and he gives him a bit of a going over. Like, but this guy came out with ball after ball after ball, and he's continued it all season. But yesterday, I thought was, he was immense. I thought it was interesting as well, you know, what he and Paddy Stapleton did yesterday, you know, they were sweeping in behind James Barry. James Barry played full back and was sort of the perfect choice for it because, you know, as we've spoken here before about Park Maher playing back there, James Barry didn't really try and catch anything. He put Pat Cronin off as much as he could. Cronin got maybe one, he certainly got one, maybe two, but didn't really do a huge amount with it. And Stapleton and Barrett, swept in behind and it was funny afterwards we were standing down at the Tipperary team bus to try and grab a few players for, for quotes and uh, Barrett stopped and talked to us and you, it was only when he stopped and talked to us that you got a sense of A, actually how young he is and B, how small he is because Parik Maher had just walked past us and Parik Maher is not small on any level whatsoever judging him off the wrong guy I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. in fairness but at the same time the amount of hits that Cahal Barrett took, yeah. just belted through them, broke the tackle, got his free three or four times. Like, it was a really storming display from him. Yeah, I don't like going by, uh, delving into the full back line because I 
nearly tripped myself up a few weeks ago Murph, by insulting every fullback in the country. Just implying <laughs> they, they, they despise hurling. They, that's the last thing. They want Anti-hurling, yeah. yeah. Just out there. Don't try and catch a ball. <laughs> Whatever you do, do not try and catch a ball there when you're playing fullback. But where did that come from from Tipperary? You talk about the aggression that they had there. This isn't what they're known for. As you said, it's more what Kilkenny might be known for and Limerick to an extent. But Tipperary were, were dominant physically. Is that a mindset thing, Mars? I suppose you can't under, underestimate the, where this team has, has been the last couple of years. You know, they've taken, like, even up to a couple of weeks ago, you could say that criticism they've taken in, in Tipperary has been really unjustified to a certain extent. They were, they were beaten, like, like they lost, lost all their games last year, you know. They were beaten by Limerick. Look, Limerick are a good side. We saw that last week. Like, they were beaten by a last minute goal. They were in a league final and still they were getting, like, Pillified by their own people, like you know, and and like there sort of has to be a thing like a, a in-house thing. They were really like, like we have to galvanize here and show everybody why, like we're not a flaky team that everyone thinks we are, and that really is typified by their back play. Tip supporters will say, "Well, then we're doing our jobs, won't they?" <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, only, I'm only half joking though. If they, they, they might think, "Well, if we're too soft on these guys when they play badly, then they're not going to galvanize like that." Yeah, that's a fair point as well, you know, but like there comes a time where you, you can't be really down on top of guys' backs the way they have been. Like, you know, I suppose you look at what Paddy O'Shea said years ago about the, the Kerry um, fans, you know, animals. about being animals. Like, and, and <laughs> Go on, Morris. <laughs> don't want to call them animals, but it was animalistic-like. <laughs> <laughs> if it walks like a duck, it like a duck, yeah. that sort of thing. But, yeah. Seamus Callanan has now scored seven goals and 38 yeah. points for the season. Funny enough, I don't think he got man of the match in any of the, I don't know, if Sky or RT. Or he possibly got it in the Offaly match. Uh, no, sorry, I meant in this uh, between Sky or T. I think Port oh, no, Mar might have got it, yeah. Yeah. which is maybe fair enough given how well the defence played. But I think uh, uh, I know it's about the ball going in and all this kind of stuff, but it's fairly insane what he's doing this he's year. He's a deadly forward. I actually yesterday I went to, um, I was trying to work out when when was the last time a player scored seven goals in the championship, and I, I thought it was going back to Dan in in two thousand and Dan Shannon, yeah, two thousand seven. But actually, Lara Corbett did it two years ago. Um, the day didn't he get four, four goals, goals in the Monster yeah, final for that yeah, kind of thing. 2011 yeah. um, Shami is like he, you know he's, he's a nailed on all star at this point I thought his two goals yesterday were exceptional um, the, the pure violence of the strike off both sides the first was off his right the second was off his left and that's Anthony Nash he'd beaten yeah. you know into the top corner you know, you know, an all-star goalkeeper, and, and you know, considered maybe the best around at the minute. Um, and I thought, as well as that, um, the way he kind of certainly, especially in the second half, you know, an awful lot of ball came into him in the first half, and Shane O'Neill struggled early on, but kind of broke even by half time. Um, in the second half. Callan did, did a lot of breaking ball, but a lot of laying it off. Like mm. he certainly set up John O'Dwyer for at least two of his points. He set up, or he, he pulled clear of Lar at one stage to knock over a point of his own. Um, I thought it was a really, really fine display, and you know people have been saying it about him for years. This is this is the thing that you know Morris sort of touched on there. Um, we can criticize them, and they do get a lot of criticism. And we can say that they're flaky. But what they do have, apart from anything else, is a, a really proper age profile. Like, they're, you know, their main sort of leaders are 25, 26, 27. They've been... A few of them won All-Irelands when they were 21, 22. Uh, and they've been getting it in the ear yeah. ever since. 
Um, eventually, you know, a man stands up. You know, he's, he's got to. And and Callanan, I, I, I think, has been exceptional. Yeah, and I think that that's it's an interesting point that people have been making, even in the the twenty four hours or less since that this is the best performance in four years. And you think about what a team goes through in four mm. years waiting around for another really big victory. I mean, the Waterford Munster final that we referenced there, that was in ways, you know, whatever it was, 721 to 21 like that, points yeah. or something like that. You know, and it, it, that's, it's, it's an, anom- an, an, an anomaly that you can't really, maybe doesn't sit comfortably in a progression of a team or in the history of a team. But this is a proper victory after four years. And you're kind of thinking, God, those guys have actually gone through a lot since the 2010 All Ireland final and makes them a much better team. You would you would have to think. Let's talk about Cork Murph because I know you have a feeling here that maybe Cork might have thought they had a crack coming into this game. Yeah, well, you know, you you really are scratching around for a performance because it's the sort of performance that just you you're looking for an explanation and there may not be any explanation for how bad they were yesterday. I mean. Sean Moran, the politest man in GA, said they were useless. <laughs> he like, actually used the word useless. And, and Nicky English called them hopeless. And, and I mean, they really were just very, very bad. You kind of think, this is a team that have been uh, improving game on game. Uh, you know, they, they came from quite a low base last year, improved all the way through the year, nearly won on Ireland. This year, you know, the progression was similar to how they were expecting it to go. And you just think, was yesterday the day when they thought we don't have to get up to the concert pitch? You know, we, like we're a team now. We know what works for us. We can just relax into it, and then all of a sudden they slip five percent and Tipperary just obliterate them. I, I mean, I, I don't know how good a theory it is, but that's the theory I have. Just an, another slightly different theory is I maybe think that there was a lot of talk coming up to the game that it was going to be a shootout, and. Like did their forwards were they preparing themselves for for a shootout? And next thing they met this defense that was like like blitz defense all over them, and their backs kind of like they stood after men like they stood off John O'Dwyer. How how you can let John O'Dwyer give him space to hit six points in a row? Like there there comes a stage where you have to say, God, my man is two points scored. Like I just have to stick to him, you know, and I have I have to shut him down. Forget about everything else. You know, just, you, this guy like, can't score another like, point. And he's yeah. a guy that scores heavily given space. Like and and you keep giving him space. Like it's it's mental stuff, you know. And their forwards were kind of look. Connor Lehan's the only guy that really showed up, and, and he got four points in play and had a, had a good game, you know. But they made no punch at all up front, you know. You Patrick Horgan was destroyed. Like Patrick Cronin was guy guy that really kind of typified it. The kind of I don't want to call it lazy performance, but just a laboured performance. That he, he wasn't getting around the place. And look, he he has some bit of it. Like he, he like he, he had an injury after the Munster final, a broken leg, but like. But it just typified the kind of lazy, kind of moving around, laboured movement and everything about their forward line. And you looked at their midfield, an area that you thought everyone was raving about their midfield all year. Um, like Woodlock said afterwards, like that they they were getting criticised as well, and it didn't they didn't deserve that criticism. And God, the day showed that they're a serious midfield partnership. Yeah, Woodlock was saying that he, himself and Shane McGrath were getting it in the neck a bit during the week. But I think both your theories actually tie into each other. There, what so, you're yeah. talking about is a just a slightly relaxed attitude. Well, whatever about whether it was slightly relaxed, I I think there's no doubt that this was a, a mental collapse. I think that the, the, it bore all the hallmarks of, you know, this is a team who, you know, we were, we were asking Jimmy afterwards, you know, could you say it was stage fright? And he was going, well, you know, we were in All-Ireland final last year. Um, 
you know, there's no reason for, for stage fright there. And now there has been a bit of turnover. Sort of five of the team that started yesterday didn't start the All Iron final last year. And, you know, guys like Bill Cooper, um, Mark Ellis, Aidan Walsh, even, I'd say we're all playing their first hurling match in Croke Park, mm. you know, whether that had, had something to do with it. But I watched the first 20 minutes again this morning. Um, and by which time I think it was one five to two points or something like that. Of that one five that Tip scored in the first twenty minutes, one four came directly from unforced errors by Cork. You know, and that's the first twenty minutes of an All Ireland semi final. Like we talked about Cahill Barrett earlier. I remember the first ball that came to him yesterday. Um, he was buzzed out in front of his man, took a, like a ball on the hop, flicked it up into his hand. The sort of thing that it's it's almost the the hallmark of you, you nearly see lads doing it at training when they're really trying to impress the manager. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm really gonna fire into this drill kind of thing. Yeah. And it was it was what you do in the first two minutes. The first ball that comes to you in an All Ireland semi final, front of your man, flick it up into your hand, get it clear, bang! I'm in the game. Yeah, Bart looked like it, and it, Bart played the way you expect a guy who's been waiting to play in all Ireland semi-final for his entire life. Yeah. That's how he played. And how, that's how he attacked that first ball. And yet, and yet the misplaced passes, the failure to pick balls, the Shane O'Neill's fluff for, for Shamie Callanan's goal. Now, Shamie still had an awful lot to do to score it. He had, he had a lovely touch off the ground to pick it up again and, and, and bang it home. But that was a simple ball across the front of uh, the goal Four minutes into an All Ireland semi final, and you're the defender standing in front of the goal. You've got to cut that out. Like it's, there's just no way around it. And it was sort of symptomatic of a really a, a day when I just don't think that they came mentally prepared for the game. Um, their heads dropped after they had the four wides in a row around the sort of twenty fifth minute mark. Um, and they were rat-a-tat wides. Like, even at that stage, you were kind of going, that, that's why I said, you know, Tip didn't really play that well in the first half because for those five minutes, Cork actually were on top. They were getting possession. They were putting their guys in scoring position. Patrick Horgan missed a terrible free and, it, and he had a terrible wide. Pat Cronin just lofted one that sort of went across the front of goal. Seamus Harrand banged one from midfield that just tailed off. Now, there was a bit of a win, but you're just going... Where are these guys' heads at? This is an All-Ireland semi-final. This is a team who have already come out and shown you that they are not taking a backward step. Where is, where is your forward step? And I think they're really... It's a, it, it's a really odd performance out of Cork. We talked about the tip fans earlier, Morris. Now, Cork, clearly their support base has been energised over the last few seasons with Jimmy Barry Murphy there, and it's been the most unified it's looked in a long time. But uh, will that help shield them against some of the criticism do you think I think it's hard to know I think it will because you'll, like the Jimmy Barry Murphy factor is massive and you, look he comes out after the game and he's typical honesty like and he puts up his hands it's, look they were comprehensively beaten in loads of positions and held it up like and I don't think they'll get really that much criticism like, like they're young they're coming um, Kirk's crowd aren't quite as Animalistic. Animalistic. <laughs> That's going to come back to bite me, isn't it? Morris <laughs> is going to have to go back to Liverpool via Galway uh, in future. So, no, I think, look, they've been in a constant upward curve for three years now. Every team takes a blip, you know, and look, it was a major blip, but I think they will come back and they will come back stronger. Malky, just on the reaction and... Yeah, look, the, the, thing with, the thing in Cork is that, you know, 
Jimmy is golden, so Jimmy's not going to take any. And whatever about, you know, it may, it may come out over the winter, you know, that that, that they just, the, the sort of, the the thought processes going into the game were, were completely wrong or, you know, that, that they came into it overconfident or whatever. And, you know, we're from outside the county, so we can say that Jimmy should take a little bit of responsibility for that, you know. Um but yeah, I, th- I think the players would get they will get it in the air a bit down there because Morris is right. It was a, a, an upward an upward curve all the time since Jimmy has been been involved. Um, the upward curve was supposed to lead to an All Ireland this year. There's no doubt about it. Like they really genuinely after they won Munster, were going for the All Ireland. This is you know when when they went to the semi final in his first year, they were going ah grand the semi final. That's about their level. Got to a final last year. If they'd won that Clare game, the first one it was it would have been a bit against the head, but they'd have taken it. But this this time it was the All Ireland. Donald O'Keefe did make the point that. Jimmy Barry Murphy's been making wine out of water a little bit. He says that the structures aren't there and a lot of people watched him last night talking about this uh, new stadium and centre of excellence, what he calls a centre of mediocrity. He says there are only two pitches there and there should be 20 pitches yeah. at this new ground. So uh, does he have a point? Do you think? He, does, he does have a point. Um, if uh, He certainly has a point in, in a sort of a, a general aspect. They didn't lose yesterday because they don't have the hurlers. Like... This summer they've beaten the All Ireland champions. They've beaten the Munster champions. Like they didn't lose yesterday because of structures. Mm. Um, they lost yesterday because they turned up mentally unprepared for the game. His wider point obviously is true. You know, it makes no sense. I mean, if you talk to any sports planners anywhere in the world uh, when they're talking about distribution of of funding for sport, they always always say spend it on people. Don't spend it on buildings. Like that's the it's the it's sort of future planning one oh one. You spend it on coaches. You don't spend it on buildings. So his broader point obviously is 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 correct. But I don't think yesterday had anything to do with that. All right. I think nice. looking just looking at at Cork as a whole there. Um, it's for like, I don't know what he said last night as well. Is they haven't won a minor or anything like that. And colleges like uh, they're they're picking all their players from the Fitzgibbon Cup teams in UCC and CIT, who are they're basically developing the players for Cork now. And I think that's been kind of missed there that, that they're doing all the development. Like underage, like they've no hearty cup teams. I went to school up in Coleman's like serious hearty cup team at the time. We had there was Middleton at the time, Farron Ferris at the time, Northmont were just probably going at the time. Like, but they were all serious institutions. They don't have any of them anymore. John Gardner was on the last team that won a, won the All Ireland minor. Like John Gardner's retired now, so look, there's nothing coming there. All right, last word on tip. Oh, Murphy, you're, well, you're, no, you're just, straining at the leash to get in here. Well, no, just uh, Don Logue's point about yeah. the five development coaches as well, and there's 260 clubs, which is the highest in the country, and five development uh, officers for it, which is an ex- that's in, uh, in and of itself is an extraordinary. Statistic. I want to finish with tip because they're the team in the All Ireland final. Is there any danger? I know Eamon O'Shea, uh, one of his quotes yesterday, Maliki, was along the lines of, you know, people keep saying that teams aren't turning up against us, but mm. it, they must be, de- you know, it's as though they're bad teams just and they come unprepared. But uh, clearly, he feels that Tip should be prepared for the final. But is there a sense that maybe they haven't had the physical test that they might have needed? I mean, Dublin just didn't turn up and they usually will provide that. The other teams they've played, Galway, not exactly the... Toughest team out there, and now a Cork team that don't really turn up. Um, if they had, if they had hammered Cork yesterday through uh, beautiful hurling, uh, I'd, I'd possibly agree. But I mean, they broke Cork in two yesterday through their own physicality. 
Um, so I wouldn't overly worry about that. Um, so they're reasonably well set. I think they're reasonably well set. I mean, it's going to be a physical final. There's no doubt about it. Kilkenny aren't, you know, they're just not uh, as good a team as they were, you know, when, when Tip and Kilkenny were having these great battles and even when they murdered them in the 2012 semi-final. They're just not, they're not playing as well, but they what they will have is the, the physical prowess. So it's going to be a hell of a game. Yeah, we'll leave it on that point. Maliki, Morris, great stuff. Thanks, Thanks Don. Andrew, that's the question that's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight, tonight, into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight, their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. No, I think Hawk have made a massive boo-boo with our matchups. Massive boo-boo. Tonight, 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 tonight. I just want to go back to this idea of, well, it's not an idea, but quite clearly Tip did dominate Cork physically and Jimmy Barry Murphy accepted that that was the case. Um, Maliki thinks that that's all right, that they're going to be well set for the final, that they're the ones who bossed it, therefore they've already answered mm. the questions about their physicality mentality. I don't know, there's something about, I know a lot of people are going to start tipping up Tipperary over the next few weeks, but you know, they beat them that one time in 2010. I, yeah. Even over those three years when Tip had their best team in, in years, I know Kilkenny were still near their best at that stage as well, probably. But I don't know. I just, th- I'm just, I'm one of those people who is still doubting Tip despite the fact that he keeps smashing mm. everyone before them by about. Well, unless, points. unless given incontrover- incontrovertible evidence, you'll back Kilkenny. That's the type of person you are on. You laughed in my face when I predicted Limerick would win. And sure, you were right. But. I mean, you thought that Kilkenny would win by, you know, well, no, the way that you laughed in my face would suggest that you thought Kilkenny would win by 15 Doesn't points. Doesn't matter how much I thought they'd win by. Yeah. They won the game. They got I, don't, the I don't remember any mention of a spread. No, I didn't mention a spread. Well, all I'm saying is, right, you know, you just have to have a, start having a little bit of faith, right? In? Some, in other teams other than Kilkenny. I think Kilkenny could hammer Tipperary. No, I don't think that's going to happen. You don't think that's going to happen? No, I don't think it's going to happen at all. I mean, like seven, I, mean I think Kilkenny might win, points. but... Actually, you know what? Tipperary people have been giving me a lot of abuse on Twitter recently about how bad my predictions have been. So uh, maybe I should just predict Kilkenny. Don't worry, Morris has just taken over. Morris has just taken over as their pantomime villain now. That is, anyway, with that is true. I'm, on, I'm in the clear. With his comments, which, of course, we'd like to distance ourselves from here on the his remarks Second podcast. Were a disgrace. Yes, <laughs> they were. Uh, they were Morris O'Brien's remarks only. Yeah, and do not Ill represent times. the views of yeah. the program. <laughs> Haven't done this for a while. That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? I got the potatoes and the puccine. Huh? And the puccine. Oh, yeah, there you are. <laughs> Bone and bread, yeah, in uh, County Meath, a place called Navin. Still, my favourite part of that is Jay Leno's response. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, it's the long way to return on of the Pierce Brosnan Emigrant Shoutout. And uh, we bring you tales now from two virgin territories, as far as our immigrant tales are concerned. The two virgin territories, of course, being the USA and England. Uh, we start first in Liverpool, where a tale of simmering sibling rivalry is unfolding. Finian O'Callaghan has more. Hey, Murphy Company. Big hashtag PBESO greetings from all your fans in Liverpool. In an effort to stave off the pangs of homesickness, myself and a group of fellow immigrants from the Emerald Isle started up the Wolf Tones hurling team a couple of years ago. Imagine my delight when my younger brother, Colin, who is an annoyingly talented hurler, announced last year that he was leaving our native Cork to join me over here in the Northwest. Another tasty corner forward for the Wolf Tone ranks, I thought to myself. However, in a rather Machiavellian move, he signed for arch nemesis 
Neighbours and reigning old, old British junior hurling champions Fulham Gales of Manchester A dirty, dirty move Oof. We played our first game against each other last April in the league And in typical older brother style I welcomed him to the UK with a solid And possibly marginally late shoulder <laughs> to, ch- to the chest But it's okay in customary sibling rivalry He gained his revenge the next day out Earning both of us a phone call from Mammy O'Callaghan Telling us to play nice And to stop hitting each other Looking forward to the next match already Good man, Finian. These guys are obviously reading Darrow Shea's column. A couple of weeks yeah. ago, he wrote how, you know, it's getting serious, getting towards the business end of the season when you stamp on your brother in training. Yeah, I, I enjoy stamping on my brother's. <laughs> Preferably uh, Mark. Shea. I mean, if Tomas happens to be knocking around the place. Yeah, Mark's him a smaller again, so I'll <laughs> yeah. definitely stamp on him. I've got about six inches on Mark. <laughs> so anyway, the uh, good old US of A held a soccer game recently between Manchester United uh, of England and Real Madrid of Spain in the 100,000... 109,000 crowd at the game were some hungover Irish people. Afternoon lads, Donna, Liam and Demo here hoping for a now world acclaimed Pibezo shout out on account of our recent trip to Ann Arbor, Michigan to see many other dismantle Real Madrid in front of 109,000 plus supporters at the Big House Stadium. Seven Corkmen and an unfortunate dub set off in the wagon from Toronto on Friday evening and in spite of a slight detour which saw us wind up in Flint, Michigan America's most dangerous city apparently we rolled into Ann Arbor Friday night limbs still intact. After two nights of pretending to be college students again, partying late into the night on the University of Michigan campus, the wicked Sunday morning hangover reminded us of our status as very late 20-somethings. Uh, all told, we were proud to spread the Pebezo brand to the community of Ann Arbor and would be really grateful for a shout-out on the show. Yours faithfully, etc, etc. So congrats to all of you there, winners of some kind of second captain's merchandise to be de- determined at a later date by me and a panel of experts. Thanks, Marv. Thank you, Mark. I'm trying to put myself into the mind of that Dublin, um, that Dubliner. Mm. So he was waking up hungover mm-hmm. in some back arse of wherever. He looks around and, there, and there are seven, seven hungover corkmen around him. Yeah, no. Is that what you said? They're all yeah. cork- oh, seven corkmen. That's, 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 that's a tub. That's yeah, a it's, tub. It's, 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 it's a tough old station, you know. At the same time, he was, he was going to a, a sporting event, which may have been low on importance, but high on novelty factors. So there's that. Coming up in the Irish Times, Second Captain's Football Podcast. Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What yeah. did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six oh, I'd like and I'd say it to you, face, not say it to you now. I will down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What are you doing down here, you surely man? <laughs> Well, I, mean, I guess uh, you mentioned it earlier. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, Ruben Gall's little hiccup at the beginning of uh, his Manchester United reign. Uh, and talk also about Tottenham, who got off to a pretty good start, down to 10 men for most of the match, still managed to win 1 0 away to West Ham. Uh, and a team which I've seen almost nothing about really in preseason. Nobody expects Tottenham to do anything, mm. but they've got a new manager, they've got a strong squad. Maybe uh, they're going to be a team. Maybe they're going to be this season's Liverpool. I mean, everyone's talking about how Liverpool could be this season's, last season's Tottenham. Maybe they could be, well, I've got confused between this and last season. But I think you know what I'm trying to say here. What, Liverpool are going to finish fifth and Tottenham are going to finish fourth? <laughs> that basically what you're saying. <laughs> Mark English is now a bronze medalist, European bronze medalist, after his brilliant performance on Friday evening in the 800 metres. He was also part of the 4 by 400 metre relay team that came fifth yesterday. They smashed their national record for the second time over the course of a few days. Uh, he's just back from Zurich. We'll talk to him in a moment. But David Gillick is here in studio. David, it, it was great stuff, I guess. I mean, everybody seems really positive about Ireland's performances overall. Oh, absolutely. I think um, the enthusiasm, the the results 
first and foremost, um, Mark getting a medal, uh, people in finals, some national records, some personal bests. It's what we want to see at championships. People taking the opportunity and in particular some of the, the, the new crop. Um, and, you know, it has to be said that I, I, I do think and from... From I was watching it on TV and watching people coming out, but there seems to be a good team ethos. There seems to be a belief in the team. Um, you know, I can only talk about my own experiences. And over the last couple of years, let's say medal pressure was heaped on on one athlete or two athletes. And you know, obviously myself, Derva, Paul Hessian, and uh, amongst others have retired now. And you're always looking for the next who's coming through. And you know, we've in years gone by, there's been a gap, but there is no gap now. You know, we've seen Mark come up there grasp that opportunity to get a medal um, the relays performed brilliantly over the weekend and you also had finalists like the lads in the 15 um, uh, Tom Barr again another emerging talent it was just brilliant to watch and I think a lot of positives to take away the relay the 4x4 in the relay is a very exciting uh, event to watch anyway but the fact that we did so well and that mm. does that I- indicate more than any other race the depth that might be there now Absolutely, strength and depth. Uh, we've never had that strength and depth before. We've always had uh, the bones of a decent relay, but we've never had that sort of quality, um, and particularly coming in from different events. So when you looked at the relay team there yesterday that ran the final, you had uh, two 400 metres, you had one 400 hurdler and an 800 metre athlete. We've never had that strength to uh, to pull that in and that's what you need one to get through heats so they ran a national national record in the heat and then to bring in the likes of Mark for the final and improve again um, you know we've never had that over the last couple of years and even when I was running we didn't have that so we were always maybe one man short or the lads just weren't running or splitting 45 seconds in a relay whereas yesterday everyone did including an 800 runner ran the quickest out of 45 dead incredible um, and I think that just shows the spread, and I think going back over the whole week, we had a spread across numerous events, um, all the way from a walk all the way down to you know the sprinting, and I think that's brilliant and shows the depth of quality, uh, and that success breeds success. And I think when you see the likes of Mark getting a medal, lads making a final in the fifteen, you know it gives other athletes that belief that you know what I want a piece of that, and that's what you want to go to bring into the winter ahead of next 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 year, and obviously with Rio down the line. Mark English, congratulations, first of all, from everyone here. If you were offered a bronze medal in your own event and a fifth in the 4x400 relay, would you have taken that? I definitely would have, <laughs> without a doubt. I mean, my aim going out to these championships was to just make the final. And to go above and beyond that was just a complete bonus for me. And then, obviously, to top the weekend off by coming fifth and running a national record in the 4x400 relay, it's just phenomenal. Mark, firstly, just congratulations on a great week for yourself. Um, you know, gra- grabbing that medal is great, but as you know, I'm a 400-meter athlete. So when I see you getting involved with the relay and running a 45 flat, incredible. Um, how did you feel? Like, hey, you know, at the end of doing, getting the medal, obviously three rounds of the 800, how, how was the body feeling coming into the 4x4 final? It was pretty tired. I can't deny that. But, you know, I was running a leg against guys who all split 44 seconds. So Absolutely. it was more, I suppose, I ran out in the fear of not wanting to finish body last amongst all those guys more than anything. Uh, so, listen, it was, it was great to be a part of uh, such a, you know, a high caliber final. Because I think that time that we ran maybe would have, I think somebody mentioned, finished sixth in the Olympic Games and, uh, you know, will qualify for most major world or Olympic finals. So to be a part of that competition and to be a part of a team who, as David said, you know, were you know, just young and coming up through and just developing all the time and 
hopefully now we can get a good pool of athletes coming through that can all push each other to gain a, a spot in the team because that's what we need, what we need competition because it's going to drive us on even further. And uh, you know, I'd agree with what David said. Now you know, there's just a culture of nobody's nobody's scared of anything out there now, and we can all, we all believe that we can actually medal. Like, I mean, even talking to Paul Robinson before his race, he really believed he could medal. And the same with Kieran Leonard; they mm-hmm. just got such confidence about them now. And I think uh, you know, it's it's a huge positive growing culture that we have. And uh, switching back to the the 800 final, and um, one thing that struck me was your your tactics. Um, I thought you got your tactics absolutely spot on in the final. Was there any moment that, because it was so strung out and you had uh, Boss, the French athlete, taking it out, was there any moment that you thought, God, maybe I'm too far back? Um, you know, it just struck me that you were very calm and collected and really bided your time and came home, obviously, very, very strong. But was there any point going through the bell when it was strung out and the French athlete was taking it away? Did you panic at any point or was there any, any kind of thought that, God, I need to make a move? Not really, because I knew even after my semi-final performance that I was still in in great shape. I just didn't want to go and you know announce that publicly. But I knew myself that I had felt great because I did a time trial two weeks before I went out there when I was in Austria. I was a six hundred meter time trial and I ran very quick. I ran a one fourteen, which you know really puts you one fourteen, so seventy seventy four seconds. It's it's world record pace for eight hundred meters, so it's pretty quick. Like um, I knew I was in great form when I ran that. Um, so I knew going into the final that if I just ran my own race and ran the way I ran in New York a few weeks previously where I managed to actually beat the two poles who for the race for me were the favourites yeah. then I could, I could pull something out of the bag um, so I never panicked at any stage you know that was the other thing I said to myself just just stay calm because if you panic you waste energy so I tried to conserve as much as I could until I got to that last 200 and as, as I said when I got to that point I knew that I had the legs to run, yeah. run down almost anybody apart from uh, Adam Kitchat so you know, that was the tactic, just to hoodwink them as, for as long as possible by staying as far back as I could and then just to come through like a train at the end. Mark, you seem to be very, uh, you've even touched on it there, you seem to be very aware of where the other athletes were at. I saw you saying afterwards that you knew Boss wasn't going to have it necessarily in the legs and you seem to, I suppose you're very familiar with these, these guys and you've beaten these guys, so you, you probably that might have given you a certain amount of confidence as to what was going to happen in that last lap. Yeah, well... As the old dash goes, you know, nobody knows their opponents better than middle distance runners. So, uh, and I think you need to. So, uh, listen, I knew Bassey is a class runner. He's one one forty two, which is the second quickest European born time ever. Mm. Um, so, obviously, he's a class time trialist. Like, and he's the best, second best in the world this year. But the guy has struggled with all rounds back to back in the past. And yeah. you know, you got to look at these things when you're coming into the championships. Adam Kachat, the guy that won it, said the same thing to me after. He's like, "Listen, I knew Bassey was beatable out there today." And I think a lot of us had that same belief. Um, Kid shot the guy who won us. He's a very smart racer and he's very strong at championships. You know, he's able to put rounds back to back and another uh, tool he has is another lethal kick. But, you know, I'm I'm improving my 400 meter speed at the minute and I think that's going to stand to me in the future as long as I can just get that strength and endurance to keep up with him. And to that point, maybe I can give him a, a rattle next year. David, is Mark, is he improving his 400 speed almost too much? But I hear <laughs> mentions that maybe that, that should be the distance for him. I think he's doing okay at the 800. No, but one one thing that really strikes me as well is, um, like, obviously over 800 and 1500, you know, when you go to a, a, a Diamond League, um, you've got pacemakers. And sometimes, if you take Boss, the French athlete, for example, you know, is he actually learning how to run an 800 um, when you have a rabbit in front of you? And I think that's where Mark really has honed in and learned his event. Um, and that was very evident over the weekend. And I think that's... You've got to be able to put races back to back at the championships. It, it's it's almost 
it's difficult to go and run a fast time at a one-off race, you know. But when you do do that, you have to bring that to a championship and be able to do that day in, day out, round after round. And I think that's where we saw Mark's um, astuteness to his uh, event. And obviously he's learning. And I think it was just great that he, he put that into practice in the final. And it showed. Yeah, it really did, Mark. And the confidence that you talk about there, is that is that based on the training performances you talk about, based on beating these opponents? Would you consider yourself a naturally confident kind of an athlete anyway? I think a bit of both, to be honest with you. Uh, you need to be confident, obviously, going into any final. Otherwise, you're going to go out the back door and uh, you're going to finish towards the rear of the field. So I'm always confident going into any race, but I knew my training was just going really well beforehand. And I had never felt as good as I did coming into the championship for just a few days before it. So, you know, it was tough to take the semi-final results because, you know, my legs just tied up with 50 metres to go. But I still thought, even at that point, that if I could run the right splits in the final that I could come through and I could run a 145 low and I knew that that would be good enough to get a medal. So for me, it was just about staying you know, focused and mm. keeping, keeping to my plan. I guess that's one of the great challenges, particularly in your event in the 800 metres. We hear all about the, how difficult it is physically and I guess every athlete probably thinks their own, their own race is the hardest in a lot of ways, Mark, but the 800 is known to be just, the, just that oxygen deprivation and the effect that that can have on your decision making. It's something that you probably have to bear in mind. Yeah, I mean, Ian Reardon wrote an article there in the, the Times recently about, uh, you know, Sevco seems like the killing zone, you know, and it really it is because you have so little time to make decisions out there. Um, things do unfold quickly, but listen, that's the beauty about it, and uh, everyone's in the same boat, and I suppose when you're out there with 200 metres to go, that's when the real kind of, it shows who made the right decisions once you get to that point, and it's it's just so nice and it all works out for you on the one day, like it obviously worked out for me at these championships. It might not have worked out for the other the other guys like like Paul. I know he's disappointed in himself. He's still around great, but you know his day is going to come again in yeah. the future. And uh, it's it's whenever it all just comes together on the big stage, it's just uh, a very interesting moment. You have to get the mind back in the medical studies pretty soon, Mark. Yeah, so I'm back there now at the start of September and so I'll be back to studying and training again for the winter time. Okay, so sorry to remind you about that so I should have let you enjoy your moment a little <laughs> bit more but listen, well done and great to talk to you. Thank you. Well done, Mark. Much, eh? Cheers. Thanks, well David. Yeah, it's really nice. It's funny how Mark talks about Paul Robinson and how confident he was because I heard Robinson being interviewed afterwards and having come forth, it is the great cliche that it's the yeah. toughest position to finish. He, finish. he really thought he was going to, he said he felt himself tying up a little bit but just thought that he might still have enough to go. Yeah, God, I, I watched it and I was, I, well, look, that race was the craziest 1500. Yeah, yeah un- unbelievable to to see what happened with, with Kieran Leonard. We'll never know how, how that would have went because uh, he, he didn't finish but that's that's championship running. You never know what's going to happen. And it went out so slow. It was packed. And all it takes is one guy to move left or right abruptly and it can just domino. Is there anything you can do? Is there anything O'Leary could have done to avoid that? You see, the trouble was it came from behind him. Um, so he, he's unaware of it. And like, okay, could he have kept going? We don't know because... It knocks the whole, whole your whole kind of mental attitude and your your stride pattern and what you were exactly doing at that moment. And I think it was just so so unlucky. I think he had done everything right to that point. If anything, he was in a better position than Robson at that point of the race, you know. But it was so packed and so slow that you're just waiting for one person to make one move and it can just have a ripple effect. And unfortunately, mm. we came out the worst there. He seemed other than it seemed reasonably philosophical afterwards. We, we're always basing this against yeah. his 2012 interview after the Olympics <laughs> when he was just a, seemed a broken man and almost ready to walk away. But he seems a lot more sanguine about yeah, it. Yeah, like, you know, for Leonard, um, 
I think what he's done this year, he had he had an operation there on his Achilles, I think it was there, about 11 months ago. Big injury. He's come back. He The 1500 in Ireland right now, we have a lot of strength in depth. There was a couple of, there was four lads who had qualified uh, rightly for the, for the championships. So it came down to our Irish championships. Olinard hadn't raced that much. Came out and beat them on the day. And I think that alone, he has to take a lot of confidence away from how he got himself back on the track to beat the lads and get an automatic qualifi- qualification for the Europeans. He went out there, he ran very well in the semi-final, got in as a fastest loser and made the final. Like He has to take that as motivation of where his form is going into, um, into the winter ahead of the Worlds next year and obviously Rio. Um, brilliant you know he has to literally you know that's what I always like and I want athletes to come away from a championship and debrief they have to debrief they have to know what they did right and, and wrong and then rectify that and get that hunger to go into the winter When you've done well is there not an argument that maybe you shouldn't think about it too much forget about the debrief I've, I've done well let's not mess with anything you'd rather just think about it think it through and get and work out what the process was that got you to there regardless Yeah like yeah. you know I think you learn more from, from your down days but you have to, when you come away from a good day and a medal, that, yeah, you, you have to look back and go, okay, what worked? What worked? Um, but you're always looking for a little bit more. It's like Mandela once said that when you climb one hill, you find there's another hill in front of you. That's the way sport is. And next year, um, not even next year, by the time the lads take their break, come back in October, November and start training again, it's all about the European indoors next year and the world champs. You know, it comes around very quick. So it's great that we have a medal uh, and some great performances on a European level, but now it's getting it up to the next level, which is world and Olympic level. Is the backup there in terms of the coaching, the structures? I saw Eilish McSweeney make reference to the fact that there is, you know, there's only really one full-time coach out there uh, Mm -hmm. in Ireland at the moment compared to it might be 50 or so in in the UK, whatever it might be. Is there enough in terms of the resources that are there now, do you think, to build on the talent that's quite obvious? Yeah, okay, look, let's be honest about it. The resources are not on the same level as the UK um, and and certain other European countries, but they have improved. They have improved um, since I went to to Loughborough back in 2003. Um, They have improved. There is services, physio, um, etc., etc., with the RC Institute of Sport. That is a positive. On the coaching side of it, we're still yet to have that kind of structure in place regarding full-time coaches. Now, there's two ways of looking at that because you could employ a full-time coach, but the athlete has to be be willing to go to this coach. And whether that's a case of what they did in the UK was they brought in an American, Rainer Ryder, who you probably heard of his name His name mentioned yesterday because the, the British team took five medals in sprints, etc., and the 400, and they're all coached by Rainer Ryder. But what they did was they put him in Loughborough and they said to every other carded athlete who was a sprinter, said, we want you to relocate uh, under Rainer Ryder in Loughborough. And if you don't, you don't get funded. Right. If you come to Loughborough, we will give you everything, right? That way there's accountability. So if the championships, from a British perspective, didn't go well, Rainer Ryder's next on the line, mm. you know. And that is good because there's accountability, and that's key. When you come back from a championship, it's not then shifted onto the athlete, and it's all about, oh, the athlete didn't perform, the athlete didn't do that. Yes, the athlete has to perform in the day, but from a services point of view and a coaching point of view, there's accountability if there is a full-time coach employed. And would Irish athletes think buy into that if they were to, if they were told, look, forget about the guy you're with at the moment, forget about whatever you're doing, you're, you're, we're bringing in a world-class full-time coach, maybe a few of them, but you have to move here, you have to do this. Do I that. think they would. I think, you know, the professionalism um, of what I saw throughout the week, um, that buzz in the team, I think people now want success and I think they'll be willing to do anything for that and if it's a case that the resources are available and the package is 
right from an athlete's point of view that if they go to this coach in this area, they will be supportive. It's not just about cash in hand or grants. It's about what comes on top of that. And all the services be provided, I think, can only add value and add strength and confidence to, a, to an athlete's team. Is that likely to happen? I think, you know, they have employed a full-time uh, endurance coach, mm. uh, which is very positive. And, you know, we've seen benefits of that from a couple of athletes. They've relocated and, like, Fanula Britton is now, he's there, she's there uh, with Chris. And that's worked well. And also, it's, it's providing that ecosystem. When you get your best athletes together, everyone feeds off each other. And that's what you want. And when I trained in Loughborough, that's the... When I first went over, that was the thing that struck me. I was like, God, you know, there he is over there training well. There's an Olympic gold medalist there. I was like, I want to be like them. So you're looking at what they're doing on a regular basis. So you're all in an environment, an ecosystem, feeding off each other. Um, do I think it's it's likely? Yeah, I do. I think that is the way it's shifting. It's just we want it, we want it now. Yeah, you know, we wanted to to move pretty quick. That race, the fifteen hundred meters, just lastly, David was won by McKessie Benabad. Not a particularly yeah. popular winner. This is the guy who's disqualified from the three thousand meters steeplechase. Have you ever been tempted to whip off the top with fifty meters to go in a four hundred? Jesus, the odd times, you know, I want to get the guns out. But um, <laughs> incredible, uh, incredible, kind of the way it went, uh, and for him then to win in in, in the of the fifteen hundred after the three k steeple is is quite it's quite hilarious, really, um, and everyone's booing, but. In one way, for me, it kind of added a bit of uh, fun to yeah, it. I don't all. know what they were booing exactly. I mean, he got yeah. his punishment. He, he, he did he get his punishment. His, yeah, I think he's got a checkered past. Yeah, he did um, a punch up with a teammate before, which has been and pushed on mascots over and all this. You know, in <laughs> fairness, if he pulled or if he pushed Cooley over, there'd be an uproar. <laughs> Cooley was brilliant over the course of the week, but I think it could kind of added a little dimension. People are talking about it, and it creates a buzz. Yeah. It's not ideal for what I don't condone having punch ups after races, but he he was. He won the 3K steeple, fair and fair, you know, and I don't think by disqualifying because he took his top off, it'd be almost like if you were on a soccer pitch, you scored a goal and you take your top off and they give you a red card and take your goal away. Yeah. You know, it's, you can't, it's not really fair, is it? But it were the real, I actually didn't realise that the real state were, was you had to finish with, with your top on. Um, yeah, your bib has to be yeah, shown. Yeah, to be fair now, I didn't know that was actually in a real... In, uh, initially, I just thought it was some fella just said, oh, he's out. Mm. Um, but it was actually in the rule book. So, you know, unfortunately, the rules are set. But uh, I think a bit of leeway. All right. Well, good championships overall. David, great stuff. Thanks. Thank man. you very much. A flame hair, a flame hair, flame throw of truth, Mr. Ken Early. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to fight somebody. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now before you give it up. Ah, David has led us into a bit of a minefield here by mentioning the, the mascot and the whole... Uh, mascots in general in athletics are very, 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 I would say, proactive. Mm. They get seriously... We remember Berlino. Yeah, of course. I mean, I presume... Usain Bolt and... Yeah, he'd be wandering around, doing his lightning bolt, wandering around, jump, literally jumping on the back of athletes who've just finished winning gold medals and being paraded around the place. Uh, you've got Cooley, who David mentioned there, was the mascot in this... Uh, European Championships, a cow, a very bright, li- likes the steeplechase, likes getting involved in the water, all of those kind of things. Some doing the high jump. Did the high jump, did he? Pole vault. Oh, he did the high jump quite quite impressively, I must say. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, that cow's got 
Got some serious moves. But the name of the mascot who Mackessie Benabad had a physical altercation with a couple of years ago, Murph. Uh, I forgot the name here. Appy. Appy. A milk carton. Yeah, I mean, it looks like a milk. It may also be a computer screen and he's like a computer app. And that's where his name came from. I literally have no idea what it is. <laughs> this was in It Helsinki looks a lot like the milk carton from Coffee and TV, the Blur what's video. The, where, what's the venue? Helsinki in 2012. Um, yeah. I, can't, I just can't see any connection. Between uh, Helsinki, Helsinki and milk or Hel- and Helsinki Abbey. and apps? Abbey, well, Nokia. Yeah, that's a Finnish company, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, well, I mean, you know, maybe it's sponsored by... I, I don't know. More importantly, okay? tell mean, us what know. happened I mean, here. D- describe the scene yeah. after uh, ben, McKessie been about to finish his race. Okay, he finishes his race. He wanders off. He looks pretty annoyed. Uh, the mascot has, you know, a face. It's, it reminded me, actually, of the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man at the end of Ghostbusters because it's obviously... he the, the, it's, it's a massive big smile plastered mm-hmm. across the, the front of the mascot. And uh, he kind of runs, uh, the mascot is kind of going towards Benabad with a little sort of plastic bag of goodies in his right hand. Benabad smacks, smacks the plastic bag <laughs> full of goodies out of the mascot's hand and then forcibly pushes the mascot. And of course, you expect the smile to drop from the face of the mascot. <laughs> but if, obviously it doesn't because, I mean, it's a professional know, mascot. It's a uniform. Oh, so, sorry, yeah. So the 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 appy is being pushed, almost falls over, and the smile, of course, still remains plastered across his face. And the huge eyes. Yeah. It's, some, it's definitely some kind of electronic thing. I mean, he's, yeah. got, he's got a kind of a circuit board on yeah, his headband. I, yeah, I, I, that's, what, that's what I felt as well. But, I mean, the story, you know, it took a rather dark turn because I found out there was actually a 14-year-old girl. Ah, no. In the <laughs> mascots. Now, he wasn't, Benabad wasn't to know that. But it was a fourteen-year-old girl. There is a best well, practice policy in these situations. Well, there is a there don't is, push the mascot don't, in the yeah, first place. It, it, there is the fact that the mascot is actually tiny. Yeah, extremely <laughs> small. When you look at the uh, yeah, when you look at the mascot, he's he's really small. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I wouldn't have. Um, I don't think it was a good idea. We've tweeted a link to it. Uh, we won't bother tweeting a link to <laughs> any of the other. Uh, controversies in this guy's career but if you really want to go looking for him punching the head off a teammate you can find that too after mm. the teammate left the head on a little bit following a slight <laughs> disagreement after a race there's lots of stuff involving this guy but he's a European champion again now right uh, we're pretty much out of time for this one sorry Ken Just looking, I mean he's he's pushed that girl right in the face yeah. looking at looking at where he yeah. where he pushes the I mean he, he obviously just thinks it's like a some kind of a imaginary creature come to life like there isn't a human being inside <laughs> but he's pushed that girl right in, right in her face she does very well to, to stay again not knowing that the, yeah, the, it's a 14 year old girl I mean yeah. you know who, what, the, per, the sort of person you'd expect to wear a uniform like this is actually Simon Hick who once spent six very successful months as Ireland's only Spongebob Squarepants <laughs> and this is an actual true story I mean it sounds like it's made up but he spent six months walking around Supermarkets dressed as SpongeBob square, square pants. He's not even ashamed of it. Why wouldn't he be? I've told you this before that a friend of mine worked for a period as a mascot, a human sized basketball out at the National <laughs> Arena in Tala. His name, Murph, was Dr. Dunk. <laughs> and he mainly spent his time getting pushed around by kids out in Tala. That was that, the main thing. Uh, Sometimes in Cork, he was out in Cork, he said the kids in Cork were particularly, pretty like the manhandle. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, Get all this mascot. Grill. All right, the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast will be out in a little bit. I've been watching a lot of it on TV myself over the weekend, Ken, and I have a standout star performer as a pundit so far. Yeah. I'm going to tell you who it is. 
in that other show. Facebook.com forward slash second captains. You can follow us on Twitter at second forward captains. Yeah. And you can email secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. And thank you, Kieran. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys. <laughs>